This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Andy Levine, President and CEO of the American Seed Trade Association. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Asta's Andy Levine, next. Today's Open Mic segment is brought to you by America's Crop Insurance Industry, which is thankful for the continued support of farmers, commodity organizations, rural businesses, lenders, and lawmakers who are fighting to maintain a strong farm safety net. Providing individualized protection on more than 445 million acres of farmland, crop insurance remains the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. From shirts to steaks, salads, and fuel, the American Seed Trade Association believes it all starts with the seed. Over its 140-year history, members of the American Seed Trade Association have embarked on a single mission of improving seed quality and plant performance for the agriculture industry. ASDA President and CEO Andy Levine says their work starts at the base of genetics. It starts with quality germplasm. As long as you can continue to improve, the beauty of Mother Nature, as we all know, she changes. She evolves. Plants evolve. Seed evolves. We help that seed evolve to meet those challenges that the environment are pushing on the farmers as well as the consumers demanding in the marketplace. How do you meet those two varying changes on a regular basis with a vision of five years down the road? Because we can't just make a new variety next year that's going to fit into this slot. We've got to project five years from now, what's the weather environment going to be? How's that farmer going to want to farm? How can we make sure that we're meeting that demand? And do we have varieties that we can breed, bring together, and meet those demands that are coming from those players? It's, I think, important here to help people understand that when we talk about the American Seed Trade Association, you represent all seed, uh, transgenic, uh, conventional, if you will, uh, organic, uh, flowers, crops. If it's a seed, you're there. Yeah, Jeff, if it's planted, we represent that. So you think about golf course managers, we have grass seed. You think of uh, pasture management, we have forages. You think of restoration after a fire, we have environmental and conservation seed. We have cover crop seed. We like to say we cover alfalfa to zucchini, and as you said, conventional, biotech, and organic. It's a farmer choice. What do they need? Or it's a land manager's choice. What does the Bureau of Land Management need after a disaster? After a flood, after a fire, our members produce that seed. And our goal always is we want to make sure that we have the highest quality, professionally produced seed to meet the need of that customer. And that's that's the important part. Talking about a roadmap of the future, I would suggest there is one avenue of a natural or a scientific progression. What we're physically able to accomplish in in reorganizing, if you will, or coming together with new life. And then, as we have experienced over time, there is the consumer acceptance, whether that's here in the U.S. or whether that's from customers around the globe. And then the other event that sometimes is hard to predict is that of government regulation, which could encourage 
or could go contrary to either one of the other two. So sitting in this environment with these particular variables, how do you plan ahead? Well, you have to take all of those variables into consideration. How is the government going to consider this? If I want to come to market with a new variety that's used, that's developed through, say, gene editing, the government's unfortunately behind in developing policy for gene editing, and our member companies are moving forward, working with the land-grant institutions and others to develop new varieties, but we're not, it's uncertain on how that's going to be, what the policy is going to be. I'm not going to say regulated right now because we really would like it to be a policy, not regulation. So what does that look like as, it, as that goes forward? And then where's the consumer going to be in three years? Do they want non-GMO? Do they want organic? Do they want what is that demand going to be? Do they want more broccoli? Do they want, you know, uh, uh, purple tomatoes? We have a member that's producing purple tomatoes that's high in good antioxidants, but it's a GMO tomato, so they got to figure out how's FDA going to deal with it, how's EPA going or uh, USDA going to deal with it in this case. So. As this innovation's happening, you have this view of great opportunity, but then you've sort of got this wall that you're trying to determine, can I get over that wall of regulation? Can I get over that wall of consumer demand to try to bring these new products to the market? There's probably one other element I should have mentioned there, and that would be the, the farmer. Uh, who's working with climate, who's working with soil, and they would ask you for particular things. All we need is a corn crop that will be planted in the water that can survive in the desert and won't be blown over in 100-mile-an-hour winds and still produce. That's, that's an easy that's thing. If you that's can, all you want? If you can just make that happen. So, But, but first of all, let, let's talk about, let's take these down. What's a natural progression? What is what is science offering us today? I remember there was a time back in the 80s when they said it took 7 to 10 years to develop a new corn hybrid or a soybean variety, and now they don't stay on the market even that long. Right. What's happening in the, in the creation and the development phase that's revolutionary for you? Well, I think even looking at corn and soybeans, you know, what you're looking at is can we continue to improve the yield? You know, can we continue to make them more resilient? And it never stops to amaze me. You go out in the field and you talk to uh, farmer boards, grower boards in, in, in Midwest or the Corn Belt, and they talk about last year we didn't have any rain after May 1, and we still got 30 bushel soybeans. When my father did this back in the 80s, we may have had a pod, but we didn't have any beans. And that's that's the evolution of what we're seeing in this. I don't think most breeders today would give you of what is that pinnacle. Is it 300 bushel average for corn? Is it 400 bushel? Well, we've seen plenty of people who manage their crop well who get well above 300 bushel corn. Mm -hmm. How do you increase that 178 or 180 average to 200 or 210 on on corn? And those kind of things are going to be continue to be an opportunity. But as you said earlier, how do you manage it so that after you planted, you got – four inches of rain in in four hours and Mm -hmm. you know then it got cold again and we had a frost and you still want that seed to germinate and and produce a crop what's happening in the lab that is revolutionizing this business well i would be the genetic discovery you know we've mapped the genome of the corn but what you get into then is you get into the little spaces within that genome that make it do certain things turn on certain characteristics uh, make it more susceptible or less susceptible to disease 
And with a tool like gene editing, we can go and target those areas to try to turn them up or turn them down within the own genetics, within the specific genetics of that plant. And it doesn't matter whether it's a flower plant or whether it's a strawberry plant or a corn plant or soybean. A lot of those are very, very similar. And so you know that if you're looking for susceptibility in spinach, it's in this area within the genetic code. Well, that, that corn breeder somewhere in Iowa can look at that specific area, and most likely that susceptibility is in that area in the corn plant as well. So that genetic um, understanding is and discovery is happening every single day. Could you possibly accomplish this by conventional breeding? Yes, you could, but it would take forever. The challenge that people don't understand with conventional breeding is when you breed those two together, you have a high probability of getting what you want, but you also have a pro- high probability of getting what you don't want. You get the good genetics that you're targeting, and then you get the deleterious stuff that drags you. And then you have to go in and back cross to try to get, keep all the good stuff and get rid of the bad stuff. And that's what takes a significant amount of time. So moving ahead, seeing a world population that's growing and conflict in the world, if our goal is to raise more food and feed more people, then it would make sense to have a, a research program and a development program that works a little faster. So at the conference in Indianapolis this past week, I, I, I understood that, and you alluded to earlier, that we now have a purple tomato that I understand that chefs and others are saying, bring it on, make it happen. Just a cliff's notes of what this purple tomato is and how it was developed. Well, it was developed in England back in the mid-2000s. I think 2006, 2007, by a a breeder at a a major university in England, and she discovered those characteristics within the tomato that can enhance the antioxidants. And then she she brought in a characteristic from another fruit that enhanced that even more in making it purple, much like uh, blueberries are good for us. It's the same kind of characteristic. And then she maximized the flavor characteristics within that tomato. So you get something that's akin to an heirloom tomato with very good um, natural um, antioxidants to help the consumer. So when the, when the chef sees that, they want color on a plate. What's that color? Oh, it's purple. It's, you see it in, in purple cauliflower and those other things, white asparagus. That chef wants color. And if he can bring it in in a tomato that he can throw into a, a, a mozzarella salad and something like that, you know, boom, that pops. And it's got good health characteristics. And genetically engineered. But it's genetically engineered. And think about it. She discovered it in 2006, and it still has not been commercialized so because now, of regulatory. So now we're in a situation where science provided us the opportunity to develop an enhanced product that's better for us. A consumer that says, yes, I want it, and I want it now, but a Washington inside the beltway that says no. And that really is the challenge because as science changes rapidly and we see these opportunities, not only to enhance the ability to make the farmer more efficient, with herbicide tolerance or BT or things like that, we, we are now perfecting those areas where we can make our fruits and vegetables even healthier. We know that those fruits and vegetables naturally have uh, very good um, nutrient qualities to them, fiber qualities to them, but they don't always have it in the package that we want it in. You've got it in a variety that may not yield well, 
but it's not in that variety that yields really well and it's very pretty and, and packs well. So how do you do both of those in this as we go forward? You know, and so that's where with the produce, it's a much more in-your-face intimate purchase as opposed to corn that goes in our tanks and is a byproduct in food and ethanol and in feed. You know, people don't see that like they see fresh strawberries, blueberries, all the others. So let me advance to another position. Technology has always been the leg up, along with infrastructure and soil and climate, uh, of the strength of U.S. agriculture. Is this the place? Is the United States now the place that that innovation can take place with a, a regulatory platform that encourages sciences, science to test the edge of the envelope? And if not here, where? You know, Jeff, I don't think science or discovery within plant genetics is ever going to leave the United States. We're still going to continue to have that. But I think the, the, our government, as we work with them and try to advance it, there is such a concern that they understand what's happening. It becomes the drag. And I think we're going to start seeing that the discoveries, that the, the foundational discoveries that are made here in the U.S. are going to be taken somewhere else because they're easier to bring to market in some way. Perfect example, the, uh, a breeder in Japan created a high GABA tomato. And instead of going through their extensive regulatory process, he gave it away to backyard gardeners and people who garden on their, their uh, deck off of their condo in Tokyo. And it has grown like wildfire. I mean, it really has. And he's gotten the approval now through the government, and the demand is starting to come in through the grocery stores. Completely different way of bringing a product to market. But I would say that our, our government has a bit of a challenge on how, how do we know what's going on today and do we feel it's okay? How should we regulate it? That's where they start. And unfortunately, it shouldn't be how should we, we regulate it. How do we make sure we feel comfortable and the consumer feels comfortable and that it continues to evolve? And that's where we're pushing our government. Argentina is moving forward on some of their activities. Brazil is moving forward on some of theirs. Australia, Japan. EU is still really slow, really more challenging. But the U.S. has is, is got a ways to go, and it's, it's a little disappointing. So 23 Farm Bill is coming up. And in advance of that, the board of directors of this American Sea Trade Association has adopted sustainability as one of your platforms. It is the buzzword of today. Can seed development be a part of a sustainability story, not just for your industry, but for the industry of agriculture? Oh, it certainly can. I mean, just the basics that we're looking at here, the discussion that we've seen within our industry, the, the agriculture community, in other places, um, cover crops is going to be a major issue. And so how do we work with, as they evolve, as um, we have more understanding of what kind of a mix? Is it a straight rye or is it a, a mix with radishes and other legumes to really help the soil? And it's it, probably not going to be one size fits all, if I'm guessing, with soil types and climate. No, it's not. You know, what works in Missouri or Mississippi is not going to work in North Dakota or Minnesota. You know, you've got shorter days, you want to get something in the ground. But I think that's an area that our cover crop folks are working very closely with USDA, with the grower community, corn growers and soybean uh, and others to try to find out what's the best for your crop and then how do we talk about then overlay what's best for the region. And so that's a key, key component to this. And research is going to be another. Uh, one major area that our breeders are working on is how do you improve the efficiency of the inputs that farmer puts on the plant. 
whether it's nutrients, you know, how does how do you get better uptake from those uh, uh, roots as you apply a fertilizer? Uh, how do you get better uptake of disease, you know, uh, of a pesticide or fungicide? How do you get um, uh, resistance? We breed a lot of natural resistance in our plants today that people um, are aware of, farmers are aware of, because we advertise it on the front of the package. Most consumers aren't. If you look at almost every variety of corn that's grown in the Midwest, there's a five-pack of disease resistance in almost every single variety that we've bred in over years. And you can imagine how long that takes, Jeff, doing five different disease resistances in the same, in, in those uh, hybrids every single time you bring a new hybrid to market. But that means another package of pesticides or fungicides that that farmer doesn't have to spray. And we're doing the same thing in spinach, and we're doing the same thing in tomatoes, and we're doing the same thing in broccoli. We those plants have wild relatives that are that have survived because they can fight Mother Nature. And how do we find those characteristics in the wild relative and put it in that plant so the farmer can be more efficient and maybe not make a spray and save the diesel and not have to buy that pesticide? Are there specific wants or needs from the seed industry or things that you really would like to see left alone? We, there will be a farm bill. It, this current one expires next September, 2023, September 2023. So there will be a farm bill. One of the key things that is the base of the seed industry in the U.S. is ag research. So we're huge advocates for that research title of the farm bill. It provides uh, resources for our land-grant institutions, other research institutions in agriculture, as well as the uh, um, Ag Research Service and NIFA and the other entities within USDA that are research-based and that work with both the public and the private sectors to improve that. So increased funding there targeted toward our national germplasm system. That's our library of genetics in this country. A lot of people don't realize that we have a pretty sophisticated system here. How do we make sure we've got the funding for that? Conservation is going to continue to be an issue. I think that's where we're going to see the things like cover crop. I don't know that in an environment that we have today, Jeff, that we're going to see increased conservation acres, CRP and others. It, it, there's just too much demand for glo globally for grains. So uh, the other side of that is what better way to help farmers plant a cover crop? It helps you overwinter, helps you retain the soil, filtration, and build organic matter. So how do we continue to do that? That's a research component as well in in the conservation or sustainability title. So we can't afford to take land out of production because we need the production either to remain competitive or to feed more people, but we change the way perhaps that we farm. We enhance the sustainability practices. Now, you work with folks like Ducks Unlimited. There are other groups that are out there, Fins and, uh, and Feathers and all the rest, and they've played a role in seeing a farm build to the finish. Do you expect there will be more people come to the choir and, and speak the praises of environment and, and try to influence policy as we move to 23? Yeah, I do. I think we, there's several groups out there, and probably the one that most have heard about recently is the Food and Agriculture Climate Alliance. We've got four or five major organization, environmental organizations that part, are part of that. Ducks Unlimited is. Audubon is. Uh, um, trying to think of the, there's a There's several of them, major organizations, and they're at the table. And Unlike before, I think they are all realizing that the agriculture community is going to play a role in this and needs to play a role in it. Uh, whether we're talking about the Chesapeake Bay or the Mississippi River Basin and all of those, agriculture can help the 
uh, environment there as well as um, the public improve those waterways. So they want to play at the table. They're there. They, I think they've really changed their, their um, um, mentality that you know, it's not an us versus them. It's a we. And it's really nice to see these days, and it's great to work with these groups. So trade and supply chain, are these two related? Uh, and, and what challenges do you see from both or either? Well, the, it, it's going to continue to be a challenge. Trade is, is that which helps us move seed globally. We move seed to do breeding and, and testing, uh, test plots around the world to see how um, crops do in semi-arid, semi-tropical, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, you name it. We're constantly moving that seed, and we've got to have trade policy that enables us to move seed into a country and out of a country. And that's where we absolutely rely on a strong trade policy. And we continue to see, I would say, a degradation of what a clear trade policy is, not just with this administration. It started with with previous administrations, and it's somewhat been degrading uh, since. And we've got to get back to where people realize that, at least for agriculture, and I think for most major industries in the U.S., the movement of trade in and out of the U.S. is absolutely vital. We can't just do it within our borders. So we have to have a policy that's proactive and pro-trade to be able to continue to move that. And, and we're working very closely with the administration to try to push them to get there. But there's, you know, I would say some anti-sentiment trade um, uh, policies both here in the U.S. and our trading partners in Mexico, other parts of the world that we've got to get over. And we need to, we need to be the adults in the room from the U.S. standpoint. Andy Levine, uh, the American Seed Trade Association could easily look ahead and see so many challenges and be disheartened. But after attending your leadership conference this past week in Indiana, it is clear that there is a lot of opportunity and a lot of excitement ahead. We want to thank you for being a part of this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic. So let's talk about the future of ASTA and, and where you see it now. Well, Jeff, it was great having you in our meeting last week, and we really enjoyed uh, you getting the opportunity to see where AST is going. Uh, the best thing that we've noticed this, this week is our focus really has been on leadership. It's called our Leadership Summit. This is our first, and, and we're real pleased with how it, it, it went off because we brought a lot of our, uh, I would say, future leaders, mid-career, looking at uh, where can they go in this industry, how can they grow in this industry, and become leaders not only in their company, but in ASTA. And we were really heartened to see those people jump right in, help us plan the agenda, be speakers on the, on the, on the dais, and uh, really participate in, in interaction. They see the vital nature of seed, not only for developed countries like the U.S. or developed continents like EU or Australia, but for the world. And when we see the challenges that we have in Eastern Europe, and the impacts it has on the developing world and, and supply and food and potential instability, we realize it starts with the seed. It, it's, a, it is, it's an exciting challenge for us, but it is also responsibility that we have. It's not just about that seed company that produces seeds that's planted in Iowa and Indiana and Illinois, the I states and Ohio. It's about the fact that they plant seed that that farmer then can ship around the world. You can't ship anything unless you plant the seed. And that's the exciting thing. We're trying to get everyone to realize that, that their responsibility doesn't stop at their sales territory. 
and we got a global global responsibility here in working with our partners in the field and the farmers to uh, to really take advantage of that. So it's, it's a blast to do. It's a wonderful industry, and uh, we look forward to continuing to bring new things to market every year. Our thanks to Andy Levine, President and CEO of the American Seed Trade Association, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the National Crop Insurance Services. Crop insurance, the smartest, most efficient way to secure America's food, fiber, and fuel supply. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Daly.